0: Hey there! You've reached Vernon First Baptist Church. This is Randy Ham. I'm one of the pastors here, and you're going to be hearing a former pastor, though he's he's still a pastor, though retired pastor at heart. Our uh, our chairperson of our council, the Reverend Laurie McKay. He's going to be sharing his his heart for those with questioning peace for questioning hearts as he looks at the story of nicodemus and jesus so i invite you to enter in as colin reads her scripture and then lori unpacks uh, the brilliance of what jesus is doing in this in this passage so join in as we're seeking peace together
2: Yeah, I think we should have uh, one more category in that save it and shave it—a definite half category. <laughs> you can pick which half. Can go down the middle, for that matter. Anyway, good to see you all here this morning, and uh, we're going to look at a guy who had a lot of questions, and. Uh, He just, well, came to Jesus because he had them. What we got on here? Okay, who was this guy? Who was this guy, Nicodemus? John tells us he was a Pharisee, a member of a very exclusive club. Only 6,000 men were allowed to be part of that that club, that uh, Pharisee club. No women, of course, and the member of an even more exclusive club. One of only 71 leaders, including Pharisees and Sadducees, who are members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. So he is, you know, belonged to some pretty exclusive clubs here. A little ways into this passage, Jesus tells us that Nicodemus is the teacher of Israel. Israel's teacher. This reference in the Greek language tells us that Nicodemus was the highest ranked teacher in the whole land in the whole nation he had made it his name even meant conqueror of the people he was on the top of the heap. I once had an opportunity to kind of well feel like that, feel like Nicodemus as when I was a Raw recruit in basic training for the Canadian Armed Forces in Cornwallis, Nova Scotia, I was asked to help with swimming lessons for those recruits who could not swim because I was a qualified lifeguard and instructor. And as I began to help out these instructors, I soon realized that I had more training than they did. I was more highly trained in instructing and in lifeguarding than they did. So I ended up kind of being in charge. I ended up, at the beginning of each lesson, telling the instructors what we were going to teach that day. And then watching them, as much as I was watching the recruits, to make sure that they got it right, and teaching them. For a very short time, I, a lowly recruit with no rank, was showing corporals how to teach swimming. I was on the top of the heap. It was a heady feeling, you know, being, a, being the best at what we were doing, being in charge. But that feeling lasted only until the next time I ticked off my drill sergeant. We'll hear more about him later. So Nicodemus was not just an ordinary uh, Pharisee. He was very high-ranking and highly esteemed by the other Pharisees and scribes. He had reached the pinnacle of Phariseeism. He had reached the top of his faith and of his nation. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees with all the power, prestige, and wealth that went along with that. So, what was his problem? Well, his problem was that he was the Pharisee of Pharisees with all the power, prestige, and wealth that went along with that. And yet, hmm, well, was that not enough? Somehow he sensed it wasn't. There was, seemed to be more to life. He was not fulfilled. He knew there had to be something else. Many people, you may know, when they reach the top, they find it to be pretty empty and bare up there. Not much of value sometimes. So what was he missing? I think it's pretty simple. He was seeking what all of his teaching and all of his law-giving could not give him. He was seeking what Paul called in Philippians 4, 7, the peace of God which transcends all understanding. Nicodemus was seeking that which transcended all of his teaching, all of what he thought he knew and understood about God. All of what, until that time, he was so certain about. He would have been trained from a very early age to become a Pharisee. Obviously, he'd been trained well. And he'd learned fast because he had made it, not just as a Pharisee, not just as the ranks of the Sanhedrin, but to the very top as Israel's teacher. His teachers would have been so proud of him. They would have laid out the law of Moses and the traditions of his forefathers as being irrefutable, carved in stone, as it were, and nothing could change them. Nothing could take away from them or add to them. They were certainty with a capital C. Now, we have to remember that these scholars were using only the Hebrew Scriptures. That's all they had. And yet, even though there was a lot in there about God's love and grace, they seemed to emphasize over and over again the commandments and the consequences of not obeying them. Therefore, Nicodemus had his faith all figured out, right? Certainty with a T. He would have had God all figured out. He would have had life itself all figured out. And yet, was there something more? His heart held some deep questions that all his training could not answer. So he sought out Jesus. He had heard of this itinerant teacher, not a Pharisee or a scribe, It seems just an ordinary Joe, or Joshua in this case, going around the land speaking words that drew immense crowds and who was said to have performed incredible miracles. Perhaps Nicodemus had even heard him speak or had witnessed one or more of his miracles. Remember what he said, no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. So he might have seen some of that. There was just something about Jesus that said he was different, that he had something, and whatever it was, Nicodemus wanted it. So he sought out Jesus at night. Why? Well, for starters, Jesus was not very popular among the rulers and the priests. After all, he had just finished chasing the money changers out of the temple cutting short an activity that was eagerly endorsed by the leadership, who would, of course, get their cut. Nicodemus likely would have been privy to all of the grumbling and threats uttered towards Jesus by his fellow Pharisees. They did not like Jesus at all. He was at best a pest, at worst an insurrectionist, and maybe even a terrorist for all they knew. One thing they all knew was that he had embarrassed some of the greatest teachers and scribes in front of the people. And that was maybe their biggest reason for hating him. So Nicodemus understood that if he were to openly meet with Jesus, he would be in big trouble. He would likely, despite his stature within the leadership ranks, be booted out of the Pharisee clubhouse. Even if one of the other Pharisees didn't see him, you know, maybe one of those ordinary folk who followed and crowded around Jesus during the day would have betrayed him. So he was caught between the proverbial rock and a hard, hard place. Desperately wanted to hear for himself what Jesus was teaching, but at the same time, he was wanting to preserve his spot as a Pharisee and teacher, just in case. There would be no burning bridges until he was sure what side of the canyon he was on. No tossing his hat in the ring until he was sure it was the right ring. He needed to be absolutely sure about Jesus. So he approached Jesus under cover of darkness, even so being nervously aware that he could be discovered at any moment. But he had to do it because he had a very important and possibly life-changing experience. And he started out by flattering Jesus in verse 2. Lord, a rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. You can't get much more flattering than that, right? Truly sucking up to the teacher. So what was his question? Well, that's a good question, because we never hear Nicodemus' question because Jesus answered him before he could ask. Jesus, seemingly ignoring the flattery, anticipated what Nicodemus was going to ask and said. Basically, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Keith Thomas, author of the group Bible study website, expands the sentence for us, the Greek word translated with the word born again is a word anothem, a word that can mean two different things. It can mean again as in the sense of a second time, or it can mean from above, as in the sense that God has to do a work in our soul before we can begin to perceive the kingdom of God. Both terms are correct. Jesus' words came as a shock to Nicodemus For religious Jews thought that because they were the children of Abraham, and kept the law, that they would all enter the kingdom of God. And suddenly Nicodemus was totally confused. That wasn't the answer he expected to the question he hadn't even asked yet. My drill sergeant, in all of his years of experience, this guy looks almost identical to him. I just pulled that off off of Google. He was very good at giving me answers to questions I hadn't even asked yet. And he would give me that stern look of his, and he would get his nose about two inches away from mine as he shouted out, No, McKay, you cannot go to the mess hall now. You missed lunch because you took too long cleaning the toilets. Or, No, McKay, that is not the correct way to fold your underwear as he pulled the offending garments out of my locker and scattered them around the barracks. So, I can just about relate to Nicodemus. What, is this guy Jesus a mind reader? What are you saying, Rabbi? He took Jesus' words the only way he could see them. In spite of all his religious training, he was still a man of the world, locked in the flesh, so to speak. So he responds from where he was at. How can someone be born when they're old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. The concept is mind-boggling to Nicodemus. But I wonder if Nicodemus was beginning to sense that there was more to Jesus' words than what he had heard. As he begins to think, maybe Nicodemus becomes more terrified of the implications of those words of Jesus. For as Roger Fredericton, in his commentary on John's Gospel, tells us, if this is true physically, being born again, then how much more difficult is it to start over in the moral and spiritual realm? Is not each one of us the sum total of all his or her experiences, good and bad, at any stage of life? Surely we cannot wipe that all out and say that now we start over again? Have all these years of study and zealous obedience to the law been in vain for Nicodemus? Jesus Is Jesus saying that Nicodemus' whole life has been wasted following the wrong teachings? Has reaching the top of the education and ruling class been in vain? Is Jesus saying that despite all of his law giving sacrifices and rituals that Nicodemus will not see the kingdom of God? He goes on, confusing him even more. Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to, spirit, or to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. So born again, and born from above, and born of the water and Spirit are all three ways of saying the same thing. The water mentioned in this verse is not literal water not physical water, but rather the living water that Jesus had promised the woman at the well in John 4.10, and the people in the temple in Jerusalem in John 7, 37 to 39. But Nicodemus was still confused, asking, how can this be? Frederick Feife Bruce, who if you've read any of his books, you know he just puts on the cover FF Bruce, explains for us the impact of these words. Nicodemus is still unable to grasp the sense of Jesus' words. He himself had probably taught others the conditions required for admittance to the kingdom of God, for enjoying the life of the age to come. But he had never heard these conditions expressed in the terms which Jesus now used. Keeping the commandments of God, doing His will day by day, were terms which he would have understood. But what was meant by this strange language about being born of the Spirit? So Jesus gives Nicodemus a bit of a mild scolding. in Verses 10 and 12. You are Israel's teacher, and you do not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. Now then, how then will you believe if I speak of earthly things? Jesus is saying, in effect, come on, teacher, come and listen, come and be taught, come and be born of the Spirit, come and know the peace that transcends understanding. So what happened to Nicodemus after his encounter with Jesus? Well, Jesus keeps teaching him for a while, for some time, including the famous passage beginning of verse 16, for God so loved the world, through to verse 21. But we don't actually know how long they were there talking. They might have been there most of the night. We don't know. But we hear of Nicodemus twice more, both in John's gospel. The first is in chapter 7, verses 50 to 51, after the abortive attempt by the Pharisees and chief priests to have the temple guards arrest Jesus. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? He was, of course, shot down and scolded by them. Are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Therefore, this Jesus cannot be a prophet. The next time was in chapter 19, verses 38 to 42, after the crucifixion. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen, there was in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Though maybe still afraid of his Pharisee colleagues, Nicodemus seemed to have gained some courage and become committed to Jesus, believing that his words and wanting to follow him to the point where he was willing to help Joseph prepare God, Jesus' body for burial. He brought 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes, which would be very expensive. Myrrh alone was worth the equivalent of about $4,000 a pound today. So he did. So did he come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah? Tradition says he did, but there is no definite word on this. If true, it is likely that he would have been barred from the Sanhedrin, the Pharisee clubhouse, and the temple. Other tradition says that he was later baptized by Peter, or maybe by John. And maybe John got the details straight from Nicodemus of this story. But the fact that he helped bury Jesus' body, contributing some very expensive spices, must mean that he had been deeply moved by this man he had met at midnight long before. Now we have to ask another question. What does Nicodemus encounter with Jesus mean to us? Nicodemus was taught from an early age that what really mattered was the law. What really counted was keeping God's commandments, doing his will day by day, and that was how you entered the kingdom of God, if you got everything right. Some of us were brought up in a similar way, and even though we do believe in God's redeeming grace, we can't shake that sense that he really wants to obey all of his commandments, and we will be big in, in big trouble with him if we don't. We keep seeing that drill sergeant hovering around us. So instead of living a life of grace and battle, we often live a life of worry and distrust and fear that cramps our ability to live God's love and grace to other people. There's a huge movement going on called deconstruction, mainly within the evangelical church in the U.S., but elsewhere, too, where people are leaving the church and sometimes even their faith because they have been traumatized and abused by leaders who are preaching and demanding obedience to them and their toxic version of faith and the law instead of God's love and grace. It's almost as if they're trying to emulate the Pharisees. So these people are looking for churches where they are assured that they. It's a God who loves them. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever been in a church like that? Do you live like Nicodemus, always worried about making mistakes, always fearful of breaking the law that you may tick off that drill sergeant you see as God? Does that worry and fear rob you of the peace of knowing you are truly loved by God, just as you are? Do you really know the peace that transcends understanding? I've often said that once you really begin to comprehend comprehend how much God really does love you, it will transform your life, and you will know true peace. Do you believe that? Do you take God at his word when he says in Romans 8, 38, 39, that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither nor death nor life? neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for tomorrow or today, nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. That passage itself should give you peace. To me, it is the greatest promise in all of Scripture For when he says nothing, the word nothing, that includes everything. So no part of everything can separate us from God's love. Not our inability to keep his commandments. Not our mistakes. Not our mental health problems, which we've learned the last eight weeks in Sanctuary Course. One of the things we talked about is, what if we had a whole church full of people with mental health issues? And we all of a sudden understood, hey, we do. We all, have, we all have some issues, don't we? Anyway, even our sins will not make God love us less. God is not a drill sergeant making you miss lunch or scattering your undies around the barracks if you've done something bad. His love is boundless. It is beyond measure. It does not depend on us keeping the law. It simply depends on us responding to the riches of his overwhelming love and grace. So do you have some questions for Jesus? Is your heart questioning what you might have been taught to believe about faith and law? Go and ask him. But don't wait till tonight. Ask him right now as we come to the Lord's table. You might be surprised by his answers as Nicodemus was. But don't be surprised by what Brendan Manning called the relentless tenderness of Jesus. Don't be surprised by the shower of love and grace he has for you. Don't be surprised that he never gives up on you. He is relentless in his love for you because he wants you to have that peace that only he offers. Amen.
3: Thank you for that word and for leading us in the table and leading us through uh, the story of Nicodemus, who had questions, questions of the heart that Jesus knew the answer to before he even knew to ask it, and how Jesus meets us. Whatever our questions are, I invite you to stand for a closing blessing and benediction. And if you so choose to put your hands out in a, in a symbol of receiving. Saying, Lord, what would you have? Maybe it's what questions am I asking? What are the answers that you have for me? Teach me. What does it mean to truly enter into your life, the abundant life you offer. So as you go from this service, may you know the abundance offers you. May you know that he has answers for your deepest questions and longs to give you that life that he has for you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.